Hi, welcome to another edition of Open Mic. I'm Mike Morse. Today we have Dr. Burton Bentley, an emergency medicine physician who started a company called Elite Medical Experts. Dr. Bentley is a strong advocate of helping the wrongfully convicted and believes access to experts at trial is a serious contributing factor to innocent people going to prison. Let's bring Dr. Bentley on right now. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one my whole career. What you're going to hear. Got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. Mike, good to join you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm always happy to talk to medical experts such as yourself who believe that there is something seriously wrong with our criminal justice system. So, Dr. Bentley, uh, you're at the University of Arizona right now, is that true? Well, I'm about uh, nine miles away from the University of Arizona in Tucson. So that's my alma mater. I love Tucson, so that's another reason I wanted you on. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues here wanted, well, we'll talk about Tucson after. Let's get started on uh, what possessed you to get involved with helping innocent people get freed from prison? Well, that may be a little bit more of a story, um, but I'm an emergency medicine physician, and I was raised in a family where my dad was an attorney, practiced for 53 years, so I always had quite an interest in the law for a long period of time growing up that way. Uh, when I got out of medical school and became a physician, uh, I began consulting in a lot of different uh, medical legal areas, and we can get into that a little bit, but that could involve everything from medical malpractice to personal injury cases. That evolved over the years into aligning other experts to testify in these matters, and that opened up the door to a number of cases that have involved criminal defense. And that's, I think, what you're alluding to now is how that we sort of step into that realm. Right. I mean, look at we experts. My office, you know, we have thousands of cases. We use medical experts all the time. Um, it's it's helpful to explain to juries and judges um, why we believe a certain position. Experts are needed in in civil cases, but in, on our podcast, we've been talking a lot about wrongful convictions. And one thing that we have found is that a lot of people are wrongfully convicted because they're indigent, they have bad lawyers, these bad lawyers don't seek proper experts to combat the prosecution's experts because the prosecutions have unlimited money, it's the government, they have unlimited money, they have five, six, seven, eight experts saying why the person is guilty of the crime, and the indigent defendant is sitting there alone with a sometimes a bad defense attorney who hasn't read all the medical, hasn't consulted an expert, and they're doomed. And so your company has helped provide uh, experts for indigent defendants, am I right? Yes, so that is one of the things that we do. So again, we consult anywhere at the intersection of medicine and law, and one element of that has been on these cases where there's been an issue, if not an outright deprivation of access to some authority within your your case, whether it's on a foreign forensic point or even just a general point. It is astonishing how often either these facts are just glossed over because an expert isn't brought in or not really thought about. Um, and that goes back to some of this imbalance in 
injustice. Um, depending on who you are, you may have access to the best experts in the world, and at the other end of that, uh, depending on who you are, you may have access to no experts. And that's really not uh, the scales of justice being tipped in a fair way. So do you have any, I mean, what was it, what, what, can you tell us a bad story about um, having to step into a case where they didn't have an expert and you were able to pro provide some insight and enlighten the jury to a good result? Well, we're actually in the middle of one right now that's, that's pretty intriguing for a few reasons. So if you've got a minute. Uh, sure, please, let's hear it. What happened? So there's a, a man in prison right now in Ohio named James Brenson, and he was convicted of murder, uh, aggravated uh, robbery, kidnapping, um, stemming from uh, an episode that happened in, in 2000. So what had happened at that time is that there was a man in Ohio who was uh, viciously murdered, had been stabbed 51 times. So really a very dramatic um, type of a, of, a, of a homicide. And uh, Mr. Brenson, had been there that evening at the man's home, purchasing fireworks, has not disputed that in any way. And we know a lot about what was going on at the time because as he had left the home, he was pulled over by police about uh, 40 miles away or so for a license plate issue. So the police spoke with him and let him go and then he continued back on his way to Toledo. To so he's got a pretty airtight alibi, meaning he's at the home in the, in the evening and he's pulled over at some point driving away. Um, and so we know where he is that evening. But what was fascinating on this case and what caught my eye, and, and that might bring us back in a moment to how I got involved in this case in the first place, but what caught my eye on it is I was just intrigued by the homicide itself. So again, I'm an emergency medicine specialist. I've dealt with a lot of pretty gruesome forensic situations. Uh, but in this one, there was such a degree of, of what we call overkill. It's what we often see in a crime of passion, for example, where someone's really emotionally involved. And if you think about it, if you're robbing someone, hopefully you don't hurt them at all, but maybe you hurt them a little, but you certainly don't stab them 51 times. So there was just something unusual about the nature of that. But, but there's a very technical point, and the point on it is that when they looked at the decedent, the victim of this of this crime, in his stomach he had five pills uh, from his from his medication, and that struck me because of a few reasons. That meant he had taken the pills pretty proximate to the time that he was killed, and it always reminded me in my career in emergency medicine just the suddenness with which our lives change. Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, "Hey, today's the day I'll have an aneurysm." I'll have that heart attack or stroke I've been thinking of, or I'll be hit by the bus. Things happen so suddenly. So here's a man who takes his medication, and before it can even be digested, he's stabbed 51 times. But here's how that ties with Mr. Brenson. It came up at trial that the man takes his medications in the morning. So if he takes his medications in the morning, and the medications are still in his stomach, it looks like he's killed shortly after taking his morning medications not 10, 11 hours earlier when you know, Mr. Brenson was there. Mr. Brenson couldn't have been there in the morning. Um, and we have documentation of that. So the way we got involved with this is, is, is probably the most intriguing part of it. So uh, Mr. Brenson wrote us a, a letter 
that arrived at my office uh, from, from the correctional facility in Ohio. And we typically aren't taking cases in that way. So I don't want to put us out there as, as right to us from across the country because right. that's what we do. Just, right. You'll be opening up a Pandora's box there, but go ahead. We will not open that Pandora's box. So uh, again, our 99.99% um, of our cases are, are just coming from law from firms. So this envelope got there for a little bit and, and, and got opened and I looked at it and it was the autopsy that caught my eye and the pills that caught my eye. I was just intrigued by it. That led me to just read through the rest of the letter. Mr. Brenston really done an incredible job, not only detailing his history, but actually putting trial transcripts into the letter. And they never focused on the pills. That trial. So this is a man who's already convicted, sitting sit, probably a life imprisonment or a high sentence. He is convicted in 2008, uh, 30 years. He's um, 68 wow. years old right now. So he's already been in there for 12 years. And when I looked at it, I was stunned. I, I, I couldn't understand how nobody addressed what you have these pills because you've got five pills. And these pills are so fresh, they can identify what they are. Um, it's the man's morning potassium pill. Wow. So it's not even that it's some dissolved crazy thing and nobody knows what it is and you know, we're using DNA. That's not what this is. You're looking at someone's stomach and there's five pills that they just want. That's compelling that he's killed pretty proximate to having taken the pills. And we know from testimony he took his medication in the morning. And it just struck me as how could this not have been looked at? So that opened up just a rabbit hole of going through years and years of what happened to Mr. Brenson, going through trial transcripts. Truthfully, he's been his best advocate. I, 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 I'll be honest, I, I don't know how he does it. Uh, gets trial transcripts, data, puts things together. But what it's culminated in most recently, and this is why it's on my desk now, is just uh, earlier this week, and this case has been going on about 18 months that I've had it, Earlier this week, um, I have an affidavit now from a professor of forensic pathology who was able to go through it, go through the uh, state's medical expert who was their medical examiner who had done the autopsy, uh, go through her testimony, go through what happened, put together an entire affidavit and say something doesn't match here. So again, the way that an expert works is not his job to say who killed the victim. It's, it's his job to say, let me look at the evidence and see if we can put some, put some bookmarks, maybe on a time of when this could happen. And those bookmarks clearly put it in the morning when we know Mr. Brenson wasn't there. So I assume his attorneys in Ohio will be filing a, a 6,500 motion, a motion for relief from judgment using your affidavit that you were able to procure from this forensic pathologist to... Uh, show that there's new evidence, a new theory, asking the judge for a new trial or a release, of course. Is that, is that my understanding correct? That's it. So the first step, again, on our end, is always just at, at the medical level. I've got to get through the medical facts and make sure we're on the right side of it. So um, unlike a defense firm whose job is to just represent their client, sometimes at all costs, our job is is not that. Our job is to really look critically at the facts, understand, do they support our theory? Are they against it? So we're not here necessarily to advocate. I'm here to get to the bottom of it. But now that we've gotten that far, now that I've got a top tier voice, um, a, a, a very renowned uh, forensic pathologist, 
now we can jump back onto the onto the legal wagon and get things moving Again, so, so those will be the steps. Very exciting. Well, good luck. Good luck to this gentleman down in Ohio. We are, uh, you know, the expert witness uh, stuff is so uh, important. In Michigan, we have a law uh, the Michigan Supreme Court passed not too long ago, in the last five years, few years, that said that these type of criminal cases, if the, if the prosecution is bringing expert witnesses against the defendant, the defense must provide expert witness testimony. And that doesn't, I, and the cases that I'm reviewing from 2000, 2010, there are several cases that on, for example, shaken baby syndrome cases where the defense attorney just thought that they could, you know, do a cross-examination and that would be enough. And without providing expert witnesses, when a jury hears five, six, seven experts, treating doctors, expert witnesses saying, this person committed a, a you know a shaken baby syndrome or the um, head trauma uh, the the new diagnosis um, abusive head trauma um, without expert witnesses. How crazy is that to you to hear that defense attorneys uh, try to defend somebody without an expert? Tell me your take on it since you are an expert and you provide experts to defendants and lawyers across the country. I think it's crazy. In fact, I'm in the middle of writing uh, uh, just a blog article um, that's on what's called the battle of the experts. And where that expression comes from, it's actually an, an expression that attorneys use routinely, even though we're in the expert realm. Uh, attorneys always talk about the battle of the experts. So I just Googled it on a legal site, and that, that term had come up 147 times in the last however many years, just in, in the articles they had cited. And it really struck me that, indeed, that's often what we have. So to be in court unopposed, meaning the opposing counsel has brought in even one expert, much less two, three, or four. If you don't have an expert, forget the facts. There's just that appearance. There's the showmanship of what occurs in trial. It's unbalanced. It looks like you couldn't produce someone to defend your side. So you've already got one strike against you. And that's before we get the facts of the case, whether you're just being deprived of justice for, for knowing the true facts of, of, of what occurred, having someone really look through it impartially and say what's here and what's not. So we see that happen fairly routinely. And it's, it's, it's particularly common in the area of child abuse. So what occurs in child abuse is obviously there is by definition, an injured child. So a child has some pattern of, of trauma. And the question is, really at its core, is that what's called inflicted trauma, meaning brought on by, by someone else's hand, or is it accidental trauma? So if we just bridge it right there, kind of make a, make a why, it's, it's either inflicted or it's accidental. So the presumption, obviously, in child abuse is that it's, it's inflicted. That's how we, how we got there. Because the child couldn't have inflicted it on himself. Because the child couldn't have inflicted it on, on himself um, would be one thought. And then by the time it's in a legal construct, it's because somebody has informed uh, child protective services, uh, law enforcement is involved. So we're already at the point where someone's saying, this is child abuse. So by the time that we've, that we've 
gotten there, the odds are a little bit stacked against you because people have already taken it through a few different medical levels and now uh, law enforcement is involved as well. So the question is, now that you're in the crosshairs, uh, is it child abuse? Is it, is it inflicted or is it accidental? And what we found is that years ago, there were a lot of things we looked at, um, patterns of injury, where we said, if you have this injury, then it is child abuse. There's a, a word in medicine called pathognomonic. And long word, but what that basically means is something is so specific for something, if you see it, it means that thing. So, uh, for example, <coughs> years ago, we would say that if you had a spiral fracture, a spiral fracture, instead of a, a bone snapping cleanly or you know, being cut in, in half, so to speak, it's a, it's a longer fracture, sort of curves down the bone. Spiral fractures are generally there because there's a, there's a twisting, torsional force on the bone. So the thought is that has to be inflicted. Someone's grabbed someone's leg or arm and twisted it. But we know now that spiral fractures can occur, not as commonly as with twisting, but they can occur in other mechanisms. What I'm getting at is, if you have a spiral fracture, that is not 100% proof that it's child abuse, that it's, that it's inflicted. It can occur accidentally. There are a lot of people, years ago, accused and convicted of child abuse based solely on the presence of a spiral fracture, for example. So the thought now is let's just investigate the facts. Let's, let's remove the, the assumptions that we're making. Um, the prejudice that we may bring to it, the emotional overlay, because it, it's a child. I mean, I, I trained in, 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 in pediatric emergency medicine as well as athletes, so I'm, I'm pro-children. But let's, let's step away from that for a moment and just look at what really happened. And if the facts suggest this isn't exactly what it appears, then someone has the right to have those facts come to the surface. Right, and that's, that's where the battle of the experts come. Rather than leaving a jury with the understanding that the prosecution has seven witnesses, medical doctors, saying this person shuck the baby, shaked the baby, I don't know the right word there, uh, dropped the baby, hurt the baby. Uh, the jury, in, in my opinion, it sounds like your opinion, has to hear the other side that yeah, well, that might be most of the time, but there are circumstances when a baby can fall and hurt themselves off a bed or a swing, can get hurt in other ways, can have a, um, some kind of uh, process going on in their brain that can create some of these uh, injuries that appear to be um, done by a person that could have been natural, could have been a fall. And jury, it's up to you to decide who's telling the truth. Correct. So the expert's role is to shed light on the events and to educate the trier of fact. But the, the expert is, as you obviously know better than anyone, is not the trier of fact. We're not here to decide uh, innocent, guilty, did it, didn't do it. Um, we're here to go through some complex information so that someone else gets to make that, that decision. So um, two thoughts on what you just said. The first is that there are certainly cases of child abuse. So let's, I mean, let's be frank, that uh, a lot of children are clearly the victim of child abuse. So it's not a matter of just looking at every case going, oh, 
not child abuse, dependent, dependent, dependent. Certainly that's not what we do. We're starting again with a clean slate. So I want to be impeccable with my word that the important thing is to look at it so that everyone is treated fairly, whether that's the victim, you know, who's the child or the child's family or who's ever being accused, uh, even the investigators who are investigating. So it's not about having a preconception. So if, if, if the facts don't support that, and, and it does appear to be child abuse, and that happens in a lot of our cases, we share that very, very openly because the legal team and, the, and their client need to make a decision about what to do with that. Um, I'll give you one very interesting example um, of, a, of a recent case that we got, and it's a baby that had an incredibly suspicious pattern of head trauma. Bruising, swelling, all of these things. I mean, if you look at it in two seconds, it is child abuse. There's, there's no way that the kid got this. It's not from a fall, it's not from anything else. So I'm looking at it going, I'm not, not going to be able to help a lot on here. And this shows you how, how, you know, that was my preconception before it in the file. Well, you're an emergency room doctor. Let's stop for a second. You must jump to conclusions when you are practicing in the ER every day. You have to make split decisions every, every day, 10-hour, 12-hour shifts all day long. Not only do we, but with child abuse or elder abuse in particular, there's statutory requirements and legal re requirements uh, that, that bind us to report even a suspicion of child abuse. And that's a really important distinction in emergency medicine. It's not that I'm putting on my forensic hat and my medical legal hat and I'm making a, a, some de determination. The law is very explicit. If I even suspect child abuse, I will be held liable if I do not report it to authorities. Wow. So we report it all the time, and that's common in all states, and that's, and that's obviously for public, public protection. Um, going back to this baby, though, with the bruises, here's what's fascinating. It just shows how important it is to really enter these things with a clean slate. The family's claim is that the baby frequently bangs its head on the crib. So we hear that all the time as child abuse defense. I didn't do it. The baby, you know, jumped off this or jumped in front of the car, or, you know, fell off the ladder or did whatever. I didn't do it. In this one, though, they said the baby always did that. And we have video. And I thought, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, they have baby cameras um, that are set up in their room that have recorded it. And this baby can hold on to the crib and go ballistic banging its head on the crib. And wow. They recorded it thinking, if one day this baby gets hurt, someone's going to think we did it. And we'll, Holy moly. I'll be honest, I've never seen that in a, in, a, in a case. What's the chance you've got something like that? It's um, just, truthfully, it doesn't, doesn't happen. In, in, in fact, that's never happened in one of our cases. But in two seconds, my mind had to do about 180 degrees, and I go, my gosh, I've got not only a plausible theory, but I've got the most probable theory. In fact, I think I've got the answer. Still, I don't even want to be overly biased by that. We've got to still delve through the facts, look at the injuries, because just because the child's doing that, you can still be mad at the baby, pick the baby out of the crib, and, and still abuse the baby, correct? So again, our point is, is to really go through the entire body of evidence, but that was one of the most striking things that I, I've ever seen. That, that's, that is fascinating, and it, uh, 
goes to show it's not always as it seems at first glance. You know, the battle of the experts that you mentioned, you know, whether it be a civil case that I work on or a criminal case that I'm starting to work uh, in this in this arena that we're discussing here, um, you know, if I'm a juror and you had to give a, a, a lecture or write a blog of telltale signs of how to tell which experts telling the truth because you're going to have an expert for the prosecution saying you know it's white it's white it's white and you're going to have a prosecution for the defense saying it's black it's black it's black and they're both going to be from nice universities they're both going to have they're both going to be board certified they're both going to have nice white hair like you do and uh um look the part okay the battle of the experts you know so how, how do you know who's telling the truth in these cases? I think that's so fascinating, really at its core, and maybe for your, for your listeners they'll appreciate that simply by virtue of the fact that a case has come to trial, there must be two opposing sides that have made it that far. And so to your point, they're both going to mark in experts. And the question is, does that show reasonable minds can differ? Because, you know, I've got expert A and expert B, and they're... And they're 180 degrees apart, or is just one person a paid advocate for one side? And I think it, it gets confusing to a jury when you hear someone say X and someone says Y, and they both swear to it under oath, um, under penalty of perjury. So there's so much that goes on in the expert world that I think is fascinating. But I guess when I'm looking for telltale signs, and, and, and by the way, as part of what we do um, in our business, I'm, I'm often working at that end of things, um, preparing for you know, cross-examination, I mean, looking at, 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 at the opposing experts, what they're going, going to be saying, and, and how, to, how to be impactful and actionable and anticipate what's going to come out. So one of the telltale signs that we always think of is sort of an advertised expert, meaning they're not a medical professional. They're not someone who's there to educate the trier of fact in the interest of justice. There's someone there earning a living. So there's a lot of telltale signs to that, but that's typically what we call an advertised expert. Someone who's got a shingle out there. I'm Dr. Smith, legal expert. We don't do that. So certainly in, in, in our world, in, in my consulting, that's the biggest no-no. So Hold on, let me just stop for one second. Are you saying that your experts, you don't have any experts that you present that are uh, earning 100% of their income from being an expert? Correct. That would be impossible. And that's a little unique to what we do. So every expert, Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. There are a lot of experts that make their living off being an expert. Correct. Except in the medical field. So if you're an engineer, for example, and your whole life is around um, tire blowouts and, and how the rubber literally meets the road, absolutely. You've got to advertise. How would anyone know that you're out there? But if physician or surgeon shouldn't do that, a physician or surgeon should have a full-time clinical practice, treating patients, being in the operating room, teaching, training the next generation, uh, research, you being active, board certified, licensed, practicing. That's that's the most rudimentary threshold, the most basic we have. So in fact, um, if, if you look at our website, you'll see there's no button to click. Uh, are you an expert? Sign up with us. We don't have a database. The reason is I found in thousands of cases, and we're north of about 8,000 for both plaintiff and defense. What I found is that that's the quickest way to include the case, is to have the case focus on what a crummy expert you have. 
Because when you don't have a case, when you can't focus on the facts, you focus on tearing apart the opposing expert um, because it becomes a distraction. So why put that out there? So in each case, we align with them. Not only is the expert board certified, not only are they in full-time practice, but they are exactly aligned to the case and the facts and the theory. And they have a spotless background. We've even checked social media. I can't have someone who's got a crazy, crazy video out there. What if they've got a podcast like this, but they're saying many things? What if they do TikTok dances? Well, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I do those. But anyway, um, but your experts are getting paid thousands of dollars to give expert testimony. Correct. So all experts get paid. Plaintiff experts, defense experts, or experts for prosecution. Or defense. All right. So let's leave aside the money. How do you tell who's telling the truth when they're both... Like I set it up, they both look good, they both have good credentials, and they disagree on the uh, cause, effect of the truck accident, the motorcycle accident, the cause of death of a shaken baby. How are jurors supposed to know? Well, that's the inherent difficulty, and that's why counsel on both sides is putting those experts forward to create that murky environment, and I think it can be exceedingly difficult. These are complex issues. So if you think about it, the reason that an expert's there, literally at its core, is because the issue is so complex, it can't be decided by a lay person, just a, a, a person without any knowledge in that area. It, it requires expertise to even shed light on it. So how does someone who knows nothing about that area uh, meaning a juror, suddenly have to make complex decisions about which expert is telling the truth. So I think there is an inherent difficulty um, in that system. Again, it's just always the credentials. I don't want to believe the paid hired gun. Your point was that, well, both experts are, are being paid. And, and that's absolutely true. Doctors typically aren't donating their time, although some do. But there are some doctors who literally earn a living, meaning a major part of their income, if not all their income from testifying. That doesn't work in the medical field. Physicians and surgeons need to be practicing. If you're just out selling testimony, you're what we call a, a paid expert or a hired gun, and that always ends up in the crossfire in, in, in court and just takes the expert out. So assuming we've got two equally matched experts, if they reach an exact opposite opinion, you're exactly right. Um, that's sometimes the goal of the uh, trial attorneys to, to show, hey, reasonable minds can differ or, or there is no clarity here or you can't decide to a reasonable doubt because we've got two great, great people here and they're both saying opposite things. But I think a lot goes just to the character of the expert again and the credibility of their testimony. How believable uh, for a physician, how likable is that person? How do they resonate with the jury? And there's countless uh, uh, times where juries are interviewed afterwards, and it really did come down to, man, I just like that expert, or I trusted that one, or boy, that's a doctor I'd let treat me. So we're very particular about that when we're aligning experts in litigation, because there is a reality to this battle of the experts. And if you're about to have a battle, by definition, only the best expert's going to win. So I think, again, picking the right expert and then preparing the expert. So you can have the best expert in the world. If they're not prepared to articulate the facts, you're doomed. And if your expert's not prepared to address 
weaknesses to to take them head on. Uh, not every case is clear cut. Um, for example, on the bruised baby case we just talked about a moment ago, maybe some bruises are 100% explained by what we're seeing on the video. Maybe there's some that aren't. We can't pretend like those aren't there. So I'm a fan of, of, of addressing or conceding weaknesses, not trying to brush them away because all of a sudden when the other attorney is asking you questions on cross-examination, all of it's going to come out. So again, being an open, honest educator, sticking to the facts, not overly advocating, meaning obviously you're there to tell the story, but not blindly just, just, just going through it. So how do you speak and resonate with the jury, I think is really important. Okay. So one of the last questions I have for you, um, you know, we've talked about the shaken baby syndrome, abusive head trauma cases. I am getting involved in that. Uh, future shows will be about that. I have signed up to help a gentleman um, try to get a new trial uh, who's been convicted of this, who did not have any medical testimony uh, at his trial. I am, I am, uh, a believer that he did not get a fair trial and that we're going to try to help him get a fair trial. But more details on that to come. You have a uh, you have some knowledge about a, a specific type of expert, a child abuse pediatric expert. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners about what that is and what those credentials uh, are? Sure. So when we're looking at shaken baby cases and people say, I need an expert, the question is, what's an expert? Is that a, a pediatrician? Is it a, a neurosurgeon? Is it uh, from, from anyone of a variety of fields, even emergency medicine? Because we probably see the most kids that are just coming in uh, after an initial injury. So we like to really explore a case at a lot of depth to decide which pieces do we need because it can be incredibly specific. What's interesting is there's a field that a lot of people have not heard of and it's called child abuse pediatrics. So child abuse pediatrics is a subspecialty of the field of pediatrics. And these are physicians who are trained in recognizing and dealing with patterns of injury. And because many of those cases ultimately culminate in legal issues, many of them are quite used to testifying and being involved in a, in a forensic capacity, meaning tying, tying the medicine into the legal issues as well. I'm surprised how many people have not heard of that field. It is, it is a newer field, um, but we're seeing it more and more in cases. What's interesting with it is if you just think about it, it, if you've decided to devote your life to being a child abuse pediatric specialist, you are by definition an advocate for children and are typically getting called in day after day after day to look at different patterns of injury in kids many of whom have, have been the victims of, of, of child abuse. What we sometimes find them with that specialty is that it can be difficult almost, and this is a little unusual. I mean, their, their job is to decide is it abuse. It can be difficult almost for them to cross over and say, let me back up. Let me really look at this impartially. Let me decide is this truly, you know, based on every fact, um, indicative of child abuse. So what's interesting is it's very, very easy to get them on the prosecution side because obviously there's an injured child. And so if someone takes the low hanging fruit, that expert can easily say, yep, it's, it's, it's abuse. 
what's fascinating, though, is when you get one of these experts whose whole life is about defending kids, looking at patterns of abuse, when you get one of them to say, ladies and gentlemen, this isn't abuse. It's really one of the most powerful things you can do. I'll share with you, it's, it's, it's often challenging because by the time a case has gotten that far, there's obviously facts stacked against the defendant. But when you can pull that magic lever, it's, it's pretty impactful, and that expert carries quite a lot of weight. Now, but, but that type of expert, how does that expert have time to treat? You mentioned that you know, you're looking for experts who are, who are treating physicians, and then they do kind of the expert work on the side uh to for whatever reason but they're 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 doing expert work several hours a month uh for various reasons what kind of background does a child abuse pediatric expert have what are they are they pediatric doctors surgeons uh what's the background there yes so they have to be a board certified pediatrician as the lowest threshold so some are also emergency medicine specialists in pediatric emergency medicine some are just in pediatrics and that becomes part of their their practice so again they're still full-time practicing physicians so i'll go back to what i said a moment ago in the medical realm the biggest no-no is to have the professional expert or the hired gun. We don't do that. We can do it in engineering and other fields, but not medicine. Physicians in the courtroom need to be full-time, practicing, licensed, credentialed, certified. So expert work should just be a tiny part of what they do. So if you think about it, cases can stretch on for years. So absolutely, a case might take you 20 hours over two and a half years. I mean, that's beyond part-time. For sure, for sure. Um, Well, as we get deeper into making sure that justice has been provided to individuals who are sitting in prison. Um, I'm sure we're going to have more questions for you. I'm sure we're going to need to bring you back on and potentially uh, bring on some of your experts to discuss some of these very important issues that are, are um, placating our criminal justice system. I mean, recent studies have indicated that as many as 10% of the people in prison could be innocent. And we don't know how many of those people didn't have the right experts, couldn't afford experts. Um, and I mean, I'm sure if I ask you the question, do you think if they all had really good experts, could that number be decreased? You'd say. There's no doubt. So <laughs> right. having excellent representation, both by your attorney, but then backing that up with the right voices, meaning experts, is always going to be the key in, in these matters, for sure. Right. I agree with you. So we'll be talking about, uh, we'll be talking more about this uh, in the future. Thank you for being with us today. It's been a pleasure meeting you and I look forward to continuing this conversation in the future. Mike, that was fun. Thanks for having me. Glad to come back anytime. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Uh, Someone who is devoting his life to making sure civil trials and criminal trials have the right experts, Dr. Burton Bentley. Uh, was fascinating. And if you enjoyed this episode or you know anybody who needs expert witness services, please forward this episode, like the episode, comment, subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast channel. And thanks for watching and listening to Open Mic.